One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Sometimes the news messes with your plans. For weeks, we've been investigating why Evgeny Prigozhin turned around on the road to Moscow in June. And then, just as we were wrangling the edit on Wednesday night, the news started to break that he'd been in a plane crash. Suddenly, we had two mysteries. Why did he abandon the mutiny? And then, who was responsible for his apparent death? So in this special episode of the news meeting, we're going to try and work out what we know what we need to know, and then how to make sense of what to know in Russia, where there are just so few signals and so much noise. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Tortoise editors Basha Cummings and Charles Wattel. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Basha started the year investigating Prigozhin for us. You can listen to the Tortoise Slow newscast, Wagner's War, wherever you get your podcasts. And Giles was Moscow correspondent for our old newspaper, The Times. Here's what the headlines are telling us on the story so far. We are following breaking news out of Russia today, where a plane purportedly carrying Yevgeny Prigozhin, founder of the Wagner mercenary group, has crashed. Mr. Prigozhin's right-hand man, Wagner commander Dmitry Utkin, is also thought to have been on board. The timing is very interesting. It is the anniversary of the coup. It's also happening at the same day that there's some kind of official announcement that General Surovikin has officially now been demoted from his functions and Russian news is actually saying that he is in prison. In the last hour, it's been confirmed that Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, was on board the private jet that crashed near Moscow. Charles, what are the lines that you think we should follow first? I think the most interesting question is what actually happened. On that, um, one of the most interesting sources is pro-Kremlin and pro-Wagner telegram channels, which are ahead of mainstream sources and are suggesting that this plane was actually blown out of the sky by surface-to-air missiles. Um, And details on what actually happened yesterday afternoon above Tver will emerge, I think, through those channels over the next few days. The the video that people will have seen of the plane that's falling out of the sky, it looks as though a wing is missing. It looks as though its fuselage hasn't broken up on the way down. It looks like a complete plane. But but it's smoking. So is that fueling expectations or um, suspicions that it was hit by a missile? 
Yes, it could either have been hit or uncannily like the U2 episode, which I wrote about at some length from, from 1960, a plane can disintegrate because of a proximity explosion, and some surface-to-air missiles are designed to explode on proximity. Um, Flight Radar 24, which had been tracking the plane and every other plane in the sky, said that there was nothing anomalous for the first few minutes of the flight after it had taken off, but that in the final minute of its flight, the pilot appeared to be wrestling with the controls, lurching up and down, which chimes with... Uh, what you say about a, a wing perhaps having broken off, and then it fell vertically, more or less vertically, a bit like a piece of paper, as you may have seen. And George, the significance of the Brazilian uh, company, Embraer, saying they haven't provided any logistics to this private jet for few years now because of the war in Ukraine means that essentially there's no external verification of whether or not there was a problem with the plane. It's only the Russian authorities that are going to be able to tell us what happened. Yep, we're entirely at their mercy. They've sealed off the crash site. Um, Embraer, like other Western aircraft manufacturers, has not been supplying uh, spare parts since the start of the war. Um, the, the Russians have been able to keep Airbus and other fleets in the sky cannibalizing planes for spare parts, so they're quite good at that. There doesn't seem to have been anything wrong with this plane. It, um, it seems to be the plane that Prigozhin had been flying around in between St. Petersburg and Moscow, between Russia and Belarus, and apparently between uh, uh, Russia and the Sahel. Uh, according to one report, he only got back from Africa yesterday. All right. So the whodunit question ultimately is going to depend on what Russian authorities say officially and what telegram sources say unofficially. I'm not optimistic that we'll ever get a concrete answer to that. I think there are many theories. Um, it could have been regular armed forces, uh, but I think uh, a, a, a very plausible theory is that it will have been a surface-to-air battalion commandeered by the FSB. Basha, do you just want to run through who would have an interest in killing Evgeny Prigozhin <laughs> and Dmitry Utkin, who's on board, who was on board yeah. too? Well, who who wouldn't, I suppose, is the question at this point. I mean, there are so many theories rattling around already, and it's been fascinating. Just just to respond to one thing that Giles said, Ken Giles from Chatham House has said that several Prigozhin associates had apparently recently changed their names to his, meaning that we can't be totally certain that his name being on the manifest meant that he was on it. Um, and Christo Grosseff uh, of Bellingcat fame has also uh, commented on YouTube um, that, you know, this could be a hoax that would be in keeping with Prigozhin's bombastic style until we have confirmation, uh, which, you know, may not be forthcoming. We may never really know uh, who exactly was on the plane. So I think there's still enough sort of dust in the air that we don't totally know. Um, and given that the Russians, the Kremlin hasn't confirmed, it's just the aviation authority so far. I think we should still couch it with some doubt that he was actually there. But in terms of, I mean, if it is him, if it was him and Utkin on the plane, um, I think there is, there's sort of three main theories, I suppose. The, the first and most obvious is that it's Putin's revenge, um, that he, that this is, as Giles says, uh, a sort of FSB plot to wipe out the senior Wagner leadership. Uh, Pro-Kremlin commentators uh 
are say are blaming Ukraine, saying that this was a bomb, a terror attack that was likely um, planted ahead of uh, the Ukrainian uh, Independence Day. Um, Sergei Markov, one of the sort of very famous pro Kremlin uh, commentators, said that uh, it was probably the greatest day of Ukraine's war against Russia. Um, so you can see how they're starting to to spin it already. I mean, if you look at the U.S. response, um, Biden was quite open yesterday when he was asked about it, more so than other leaders saying he thinks it's probably Putin, but uh, senior officials in the British government have not yet commented and, and aren't commenting. But I think you can see that um, in general, uh, the, the, the feeling is, is that this was, this was Putin exacting his revenge for the mutiny uh, exactly two months ago. And this was a case for progression of when, not if. So, Giles, what does it mean for the Russian military command? Because as part of that effort to try and understand exactly what had happened in the mutiny, that June 23rd, 24th, March for Justice, as Prigozhin called it, I was really struck looking into that at the extent to which this was really a brutal contract negotiation, that Shoigu and the Defence Ministry was saying the Wagner forces have to sign up to contracts in effect, making them subordinate to the defence ministry and Prigozhin clearly not wanting that to happen and deciding to march on Moscow. With Prigozhin and Utkin out of the picture, what happens now to Shoigu and Gerasimov? What happens to the Putin military command? And by extension, what happens, do you think, in terms of the war in Ukraine? It's not just Prigozhin and Utkin who appear to be out of the picture. What we know as well is that General Surovikin, of the day before was also dismissed from his position. Now, he was the bald and extremely effective builder of the defences that the Ukrainian forces are now trying to blast through. But he was also thought to be close to Wagner uh, and possibly close to elements in the GRU, that's Russian um, military intelligence, uh, that have not been as loyal to Putin as he would like or as the regular army. Um, Yes, I think in two stages, what happened yesterday and then previously what happened to uh, provoke the abortive putsch, Putin has succeeded for the time being in consolidating his control of the regular armed forces, uh, bringing uh, private militias under the control of the regular armed forces. And let's remember that Wagner are not the only ones. Gazprom and other industrial conglomerates uh, of all the bizarre things have, have been contributing their own. And, and that became a liability for Putin. And so part of his and Shoigu, the defence minister's uh, priorities, uh, just before the, the coup attempt and after the successful capture of Bakhmut by Wagner troops, was to reassert control, their own control over Russian armed forces. And let's just remember very quickly from history how critical that is to control of the country. It was when uh, regular troops in tanks in Moscow refused to fire on the people that Yeltsin uh, climbed on a tank and reasserted his control over the Russian Federation in 1993. Just on this Surovikin point, he is the general who oversaw the aerial bombardment in Syria, right? The General Armageddon. So, Basha, how much does it look to you 
And I can't work out whether this coincidence or whether you piece together a narrative that looks like a coordinated crackdown, the defenestration of Surovikin, the deaths of Prigozhin and Utkin and others in the Wagner High Command. Do you think that what you're seeing is what we talked about back at the end of June, which is a crackdown by Putin across the board and an assertion of authority? Or do you think we just can't see yet whether or not these things just seem to be happening at the same time. It seems very suspicious if they are. Well, one of the things that I learnt back in February when I was uh, reporting on Wagner um, and the sort of theme of of that project was the sense that Wagner was has always been conceptualised as a proxy. It's always been at arm's length from the Kremlin. It's a vehicle for plausible deniability for Russian interests around the world. And so in that sense, it has always been a part of the Kremlin, even when we see Prigozhin critical of, of the ways in which Putin was running the war or the people around him were running the war in Ukraine. So I think it's hard to, I think it is too soon to say exactly how coordinated, but the the the, the phrase that really sticks with me from from that reporting project is that chaos is a ladder in Russia and Prigozhin was climbing it. But we concluded in the end by saying that it's still Putin at the bottom of the ladder ready to kick it out from under him. And I think that that's what we've seen here is that Prigozhin as a cult-like leader for Wagner has been incredibly useful in Ukraine in the in the offensive on Bakhmut, has been incredibly useful around the world in uh, furthering Russian interests until he wasn't. Um, but that, I think, leads to a very interesting question about what happens to Wagner from here, which we can talk about in a moment. Um, so I think, you know, I don't think this is an accident. And I don't think that there are many accidents in Putin's Russia at the moment. Well, let's talk about it now, because I find it hard to read Syria, Libya, Central African Republic, Sudan, Mali. Chaos reigns and seems to have been brought in some small part by Wagner. How much is that an extension of the Russian state, a proxy of the Russian state? And without Prigozhin there, how much will these effectively be nationalized by the Russian state? And so on the ground in those countries, things won't change that much. Two, I suppose, three th key things to know. One is that very soon after the mutiny, uh, Lavrov travelled to um, Mali and the Central African Republic and said, guys, we will be continuing here. Don't worry about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Wagner interests in, in Africa will continue. And that's the Russian foreign minister. So he, you know... If, if if Russia weren't holding the reins on Wagner, if the Kremlin weren't holding the reins on Wagner uh, and, and those interests, that he would have no need to make those assurances. One thing. The second thing is that there have been reports that um, after all the Wagner fighters moved to Belarus following the mutiny, um, a lot of them got bored. They weren't being paid very much money. Uh, and a lot of them have been relocating to West Africa. That's according to The Guardian. Um, so, And we're talking in the thousands, possibly, of fighters. So it could be that we're just seeing a kind of refocusing of Wagner uh, to other parts of the world. Um, the thing, to I think, to remember about Wagner 
uh, outside of Ukraine and Russia is that it is a galaxy of operations. It's not just security. It's disinformation. It's um, capital projects, resource extraction. Um, it's it's not just, you know, participating in coups and, <laughs> and other uh, military operations. I think it's very difficult to imagine that just the removal of Prigozhin will disintegrate that entire galaxy of interests. However, there are some people saying a lot of that uh, a lot of those relationships with local warlords, uh, local mines, local politicians were really fueled by Prigozhin, that it was part of his, you know, that it is a kind of character cult around him. And so without him, it may be that those interests are, for the time being, uh, weakened. Uh, and Basha, do you think, having covered Prigozhin and Wagner's war, and Wagner's, if you like, exercises and efforts and interests around the world that you have, in the way in which Charles offered a first best guess at the mystery of how he died, a first best guess at the mystery of why he turned round on the road to Moscow. Do you just reckon he calculated that he wasn't strong enough to take Moscow? Often the answer to these things are quite obvious, but that seems such a strange one and no one seems to meaningfully have offered an answer to it. No, and to be honest, I'm not sure that I can either because I don't. I've really, I've really struggled to understand it. I, I mean, my first instinct was that it was a show of force, not a, not a, not an attempt at real force. That it was a, it was a symbolic gesture to make a point rather than an actual march on Moscow. Um, and I think that you can see the powerful ways in which image image-making, viral videos operate within the Telegram channels of Wagner where they share, you know, all of this kind of hyper-macho, pumped-up nationalist rhetoric. And I think it was an incredibly powerful message within that context um, to do it in the first place. I I don't know why they turned back. Um, and it, at the time, I thought it was self-preservation, but now it looks like it, it wasn't. Well, the, reason, the only reason I ask is... I think when you look more and more into the way in which Wagner operates in Mali or the Central African Republic, it's striking how many people say similar things, which is that they have an incredible brute force about them, but they don't have scale of force. They might surround the presidential palace or their mining interests, but they don't really operate through the country. You know, they're a mercenary group. But they do, you know, they are operating on hybrid warfare, so they have many different levers to pull. It's not just physical force, there is also disinformation. Just two things I wanted to add, just to give a sense of what might be happening next. There were reports that at around 7 o'clock yesterday, Mo Moscow time, um, a Ministry for Emergency Situations plane took off from Zhukovsky Airport that was due to go to Damascus uh, and actually just continued flying to Bamako. And there were thoughts that that was a plane full of, you know, Russian officials going to try and steady the, the ship in other parts of the world. And there's also a big question about what happens in Sudan. Already there have been, you know, commentary that this will impact Hamedi's calculations about he, uh, the civil war there um, and questions about whether Moscow will continue to support that that fight there. So, you know, it is about Prigozhin, but it's also so much bigger than that. But, but the read is from, from Lavrov to the plane to Bamako is that the Wagner stamp gets removed and the Russian Federation stamp is imposed on those interests. 
in Africa. That's yeah, I mean, the implication. It, yes, it, they might find a replacement. I mean, there are reports that Putin was trying to find a replacement progression after the mutiny. Giles, so the obvious and biggest question is what this then means for Putin and Putin's war in Ukraine. I think uh, in in the short term, his position is strengthened. In the longer term, uh, there are sensible people saying it is weakened. They include Mike McFall, former US ambassador to to Moscow, uh, and Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster, who, let's remember, was also a legitimate opposition politician. Um, there's, there's a degree of wishful thinking on the part of people in those sorts of positions. Uh, Kasparov once said to me, uh, there's only one way Putin leaves the Kremlin, and that's in a coffin. And um, objectively, there's probably an increased, but still small risk that Putin himself uh, it, is at greater uh, risk of of another coup attempt now than he was 24 hours ago. Just on the history point, can we just touch on both of those? The reason I mentioned 1905 is I remember once asking Mikhail Khodorkovsky what he thought about the war in Ukraine. And he said, well, you need to go back to 1905 and uh, Russia's surrender in the Russo-Japanese war. The only way strong men in Russia are removed are by losing wars, then they lose power. And the reason I mentioned 1991 is I think it was 1991, which was when Gorbachev, the Russian military, tried to seize control. Gorbachev was under house arrest and a matter of months later, he was out. So even if there feels like there's a crackdown now, things things seem much more unstable, both given the war and given the failed putsch in June. Yes. I think Afghanistan is also an important lesson from history. That was uh, a 10-year war that really did for the Soviet Union. That went from 79 to 89. But 10 and, years, as yeah. in this thing might go on for a long, long time. Uh, uh, let's hope it doesn't. I, I think Khodorkovsky's parallel with 1905 is, is again, somewhat uh, optimistic. That was an appallingly run war, eight time zones from <laughs> Moscow before cell phones. This is an appallingly run war in the same time zone as Moscow with uh, sufficient time and resources to correct their mistakes. Uh, unfortunately, that's what's happening to a large degree on the front line. In, in, uh, uh, and, and let's remember, they're in a defensive position, and we're told you need a three-to-one advantage to overcome that kind of defensive position. So for now, Putin is in control. So just finish up there, Giles, on the ground in Ukraine. In effect, Surovikin and Prigozhin, two of the most aggressive uh, operators in this war, are out. If you're Zelensky, if you're NATO, if you're the White House, does Prigozhin's apparent death change your calculations? I think the short answer has to be yes, because in a vast, uh, largely conscripted army, there had only been one unit that had proven capable of um, taking territory against strong opposition. The The story of the Russian army in Ukraine since February last year, apart from that, was one of unmitigated failure. And I come back to two central points. Defensively, they're well organized now. Offensively, it has been a disaster in every respect for Russia, except for Wagner in Bakhmut. So I would, if I was Zelensky, I would be cautiously optimistic. I don't think this changes the the strategic balance uh, enormously, but 
in Ukraine, as in Chechnya before, as elsewhere, when asked to turn on a dime, conduct dramatic op- uh, and swift Blitzkrieg-style operations, the Russian army has largely failed. Giles, Basha, thank you very much for doing this. We're going to be back tomorrow with our usual Friday episode, and we're going to discuss the other stories that are in the news this week. One of them is a really curious one, the thefts at the British Museum. And Ben Bradshaw, who was the UK's culture secretary, is going to join us to tell us why he thinks that story should lead the news. As ever, if you have thoughts on this or any other story, do just let us know. Newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Thanks for listening in. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. There's certainly no shortage of news in the world. We leave you with the voice of Evgeny Prigozhin. У нас нехватка боеприпасов. 70%. Шойгу! Герасимов! Где боеприпасы? Посмотрите на них, су! Тортес. Ж...